In the modern age, with news and updates at our fingertips, it can be very easy to get bogged down in the negativity and the more terrifying parts of our world. We can become overwhelmed by the number of missing persons there are and consumed by how many crimes go unsolved. Naturally, these cases are a big part of what we study on this channel and of course through the Cold Case Detective podcast, which you can check out by following the link below. But we do this in the hope that one day these cases might be solved and with constantly improving forensics and DNA technology, we are seeing a staggering number of cold cases begin to thaw and finally receive justice. It is an incredible thing that proves there is always hope to be found, even in the darkest chapters of our history. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll discuss three cases that were recently solved. Crystal Lynn Beslanowicz. On December 4th, 1955, a young woman going by the name of Tracy Beslanowicz told her partner Chris that she was going for food at the local Circle K. However, when she didn't return home by 11 p.m., Chris began to worry. It wasn't like Tracy to not come home. She always let her boyfriend know where she was. Although he was concerned, Chris didn't immediately call the police. Instead, he knocked on the doors of neighbors and went down to Circle K himself to see if she was there, but there was no sign of Tracy. The next morning at 8.40 AM, 45 miles away from Salt Lake City, a rancher and his son found the nude body of a young woman along the banks of the Provo River in Northfield near Midway. The local police department were soon on the case. Very little evidence was found, but a pair of socks were located neatly folded on a rock. The forensics team also collected several large bloody rocks from nearby, which they suspected to be the murder weapons. Since the body had no clothing and also no other belongings, including identification, authorities had a Jane Doe on their hands. However, they did have one advantage. The unidentified victim had several distinct tattoos, which they sketched out in the hopes that someone would come forward when they saw them on the news. The plan worked. Chris recognized the tattoos as belonging to his girlfriend, Tracy, and he immediately contacted the authorities. However, all was not as it seemed. When police got in touch with Tracy's father, he revealed his suspicions that Jane Doe was not his daughter, Tracy, but was his 17-year-old stepdaughter, Crystal, who had a habit of using her sister's identity. Crystal and Chris had been together for just over a year when they decided to start living together. The couple had been residing in a motel while they got the money together to find somewhere more permanent to live. Crystal's mother, Lindy Torson, said that her daughter had become involved with drugs and sex work at the age of 15. She also added that, quote, Every time Crystal came home, she had her arms spread out wide and a big smile on her face. I never refused her. I always loved her. 
As a result of this news, that the dead body wasn't that of Tracy, but of Crystal, Chris became law enforcement's number one suspect. After all, he was Crystal's boyfriend, who had identified her as Tracy. Very mysterious behavior for an innocent man. But there was one problem. Chris lacked the motive and means to have carried out this horrific execution. Crystal was the breadwinner of the household, and she financially supported Chris. He also didn't have a car, so it seemed unlikely that he could have made the long distance trip to where the dead woman was found. Three days later, authorities thought they'd struck gold when they found out about a taxi driver named Herb Fry, who was well known for his infatuation with Crystal. He reportedly went as far as to tell people, if I can't have her, nobody can. However, there was no evidence to link him to the crime either. Although the case grew cold as the years passed, investigators couldn't forget about Crystal. Todd Bonner, the detective who worked the case in the beginning, noted that it haunted him his entire career. By 2008, new techniques allowed forensic scientists to swab the rocks found by Crystal's body. As well as her DNA, the partial DNA of an unidentified male was also present on the murder weapons. It was not a match for Chris, nor was it a match to Herb Fry. Then, five years later in 2013, a new DNA tool became available. The MVAC was used on the rocks found at the scene, allowing authorities to pull a full DNA profile from them. Upon running the profile through CODIS, the police got a hit. The DNA belonged to Joseph Michael Simpson. Simpson was surveilled for a few days by law enforcement until he discarded a cigarette, which they used to definitively confirm that he was their offender. Todd Bonner, now county sheriff, tracked the perpetrator to Florida that same year to put the handcuffs on the killer himself. Simpson had a colorful history of crime, including several drug offenses. However, the most notable thing is that he had been paroled just eight months earlier after serving time for murder. He'd been arrested in 1987 and spent eight years behind bars for the crime. On September 29th, 2016, Simpson was convicted of the murder of Crystal Beslanowicz. He was given life in prison without the chance for parole. Although nothing can erase the pain of losing a child and a sibling, at least justice was found, and the murderer who nearly got away with it is forever off the streets. Pamela Shelley. On January 6th, 2001, at 5.15 p.m., Pamela Shelley was shot in the head in her bathroom. Her case was considered very open and shut, and almost immediately ruled as a suicide. At the time that Pam passed away, she was living with her boyfriend, Ronnie Hendrick, and her two children, Kayla, 12, and Dustin, nine. Originally from Arkansas, the mother of two was now living in a rural property in DeWitt County, Texas, 800 miles away from her home and her family. She was now just a mile away from Ronnie's family, having agreed to move to Texas with him in August of 2000. When Pam's suicide attempt was called in by Ronnie's father, she was still breathing. The ambulance that arrived came from outside the area and required directions to the nearest hospital. Ronnie was all too happy to oblige, leaving in the ambulance with Pamela just as the local police pulled up to investigate the scene. 
As a result, he couldn't be questioned, nor could they test him for gunshot residue. Law enforcement carried on with their job regardless, photographing the scene. A single slug and bloodstains were found on the floor, while the .32 caliber revolver Pam had used, along with its holster, were found on the bathroom counter. After combing through the scene, investigators turned to the Hendrick family, who were all present. They told officers that Pam was suicidal because she had to return to Arkansas, and they claimed she had to do this because her daughter was unhappy in Texas. They also added that there was a history of suicide in the mother of two's family, and that her sister had killed herself in the years prior. They blamed 12-year-old Kayla in particular for her death, stating that she was a difficult child. Unbeknownst to the investigating officers, however, none of this was true. They were fed more lies upon questioning Ronnie, who said he was outside when he heard the shots. When he ran inside, he found his girlfriend on the floor. Once again, he reiterated the story of how Pam was upset and depressed about having to leave Texas. He explained that she would lose her children if she didn't return to her home state. Meanwhile, Pam died in San Antonio. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy quickly determined that the cause of death was suicide. The injury to her temple was consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. However, the police officers working the case were not entirely satisfied with this ruling, so they asked Ronnie Hendrick to come and take a polygraph test. He was scheduled for two, but failed to show up on both occasions. It wasn't long before law enforcement realized that Ronnie had fled, and they struggled to locate him. The case grew cold and was eventually closed, until 2008 when it was finally reopened. Around this time, Ronnie reappeared in DeWitt County. He was in jail on domestic abuse charges. An officer found that he'd been living in South Dakota since Pam's death. He was finally given a polygraph test in relation to his ex-girlfriend's case and failed. However, we must recognize that polygraph tests are famously unreliable. Still, this negative result may have played a role in Ronnie's behavior, as during further questioning, he finally admitted to four witnesses that he had not been outside when Pam took her life. In fact, he had been in the room with her. Four years later in 2012, law enforcement attempted to bring attention to the case by working with a new TV show called Cold Justice. During the crew's research for the episode, no new forensics were uncovered. However, plenty of other information was. Firstly, Pam's family had no history of suicide or depression. They also found out that Ronnie Hendrick had a pattern of both alcohol and domestic abuse, and that he had, at one time, nearly killed a former girlfriend. The most revealing piece of information, however, was found when Pam's ex-husband, Jesse, was tracked down. He told authorities that on the day of her passing, Pam was due to come home to Arkansas, and the couple were going to reunite and try to be a family again, as he was Kayla's biological father. He explained that while on the phone with Pam, Ronnie grabbed it from her and told Jesse the only way his girlfriend would be coming back to Arkansas was in a pine box. We have no answer as to why Jesse did not come forward sooner with this information, although it is speculated that because of his multiple run-ins with the law, he was incarcerated at the time of his interview with police, that he had grown distrustful of authorities and did not believe in reaching out to them. Ronnie Hendrick, 41 at the time, was indicted in 2012. 
However, there was one final hitch with the solving of Pam's case. As cold justice aired nationwide before the trial was due to start, it became very difficult for the authorities to garner a non-biased jury, leading to an eventual mistrial. However, all was not lost. Ronnie subsequently entered a guilty plea in exchange for 22 years behind bars. Christy Murak. 25-year-old Christy Murak was a popular school teacher living in Pennsylvania in 1992. Born in Pennsylvania in 1967, Christy Murak had graduated from high school in 1985 and gone on to become a teacher. She had recently moved to Lancaster and taken a job teaching sixth grade children, where she excelled due to her kind, caring attitude. Although she was particularly close to her mother, Christy was very private about her life outside of work. As a result, not much information on her life outside of the school is known to the public. On December 21st, 1992, always punctual Christy failed to show up for work, causing her colleagues and boss to grow concerned. Knowing that this was extremely out of character for the 25-year-old, the principal of the school drove to her apartment complex. Suspiciously, the door was ajar, so Christie's boss peered in. What he found inside was a scene which horrified him, and he fled to another building to call the authorities. When police arrived, they quickly learned about Christie's steadfast devotion to her door and window locks. She was an extremely cautious person who always made sure everything was locked up tight before bed. She did the same when she left the house, making it extremely unusual that her door was ajar. From this, authorities deduced that the 25-year-old must have been either surprised by her attacker as she left her home or knew the person and let them through. Christy did not live alone. She did have a roommate who'd left just before seven that morning. As Christy herself usually left around 7.45, that left a very small window in which she had been attacked. There had clearly been a struggle inside the apartment. Gift parcels and bags were strewn all over the floor. The 25-year-old's end had been brutally violent. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with her own sweater, her clothing in disarray. She'd also suffered blunt force trauma, her face littered with bruising, and she had a fractured jaw. The perpetrator's DNA was taken from Christie's body and from underneath it, but provided no new leads. While the school's principal was, of course, considered a suspect initially, he was quickly ruled out, as was an old boyfriend of Christie's who was married and 20 years her senior. Multiple witnesses provided the description of a man driving either a white 1993 Dodge Shadow Convertible or a 1990s ES, or possibly a Toyota. Following this, several different descriptions, sketches, and car information was released to the public over the following months. The police were clearly trying, but it seems difficult for them to pin down what information was the most accurate from what they'd been given. For years, police believed that she had been slain by somebody that she knew, 60 men were looked into and dismissed via DNA testing, and 1,600 people were interviewed in total in Christie's case. But everything was a dead end. Then in 2003, a local newspaper received a strange call from a suspicious man who mentioned Christie's alleged double life and promiscuous behavior. However, by the time the FBI was contacted, 
it was too late to run a trace to locate the caller. Fast forward to 2017, where new profiles of the killer were made, utilizing his DNA from the crime scene. A year later, this DNA was uploaded to GEDmatch, a genealogy website, and investigators working Christie's case finally got a hit on a man named Raymond Rowe, a local beloved DJ who went by the name of DJ Freeze. His sibling had uploaded their DNA to the website, leading to the hit. Much like the case of Crystal Beslanowicz, investigators in Christie's case observed her suspected killer before obtaining his DNA. It conclusively matched that which was taken from Christie's crime scene. Authorities also discovered that the man had driven a white Toyota coup at the time of the slaying. Born in 1968, Raymond Rowe had been divorced three times and disturbingly, actually held an anti-violence rally the same year he had murdered Christie. Rowe was arrested in June of 2018. At the time, he was married to his fourth wife, a Ukrainian woman with a child from a previous relationship. Upon being arrested, Rowe admitted guilt and offered an apology to Christie's remaining family. Her mother had passed away sometime prior to the capture of Rowe. He told the family simply, I can't imagine what you're going through. I apologize. Despite admitting to the crime, Roe offered no version of events, nor did he explain why he carried out such a horrific deed. It remains unknown how he knew Christy, although a ticket stub found in her apartment at the time indicates that she visited the club where Roe worked as a DJ in 1992, but it is unclear whether the pair actually knew each other or not. After his arrest, one of his ex-wives came forward to state that at the time of Christie's execution, the couple had read the headlines together in shock. She noted that Roe had expressed concern for her safety, knowing there was a killer on the loose. While Roe escaped the death sentence, he will be in prison for the rest of his life. Authorities are uncertain if this was Roe's only crime. For many, given the unforgiven brutality of Christie's slaying, it seems unlikely that it was simply a one-off act. Despite his lifelong imprisonment, Christie's family have noted that Roe was still free of consequences for longer than their beloved sister and daughter was even alive. Despite this, Roe was just another criminal who couldn't run forever. Another who thought they'd gotten away with it before justice finally caught up with him. And there you have the facts three cases that were recently solved. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.